You're listening to the Crackpot Crones podcast with Terry Baum and Carolyn Myers. Hello, I am Carolyn Myers, retired warrior princess of comedy. And I am Terry Baum, slightly world-renowned lesbian playwright. And together we are... The, the Crackpot Crones. Hello, crony, and happy Women's History Month to you. And to you too, my crony Carolyn. It's very, very exciting that this whole month, which has 31 days in it, is dedicated to honoring women's history. And, and Terry, we have been working together for a long, long time. I believe that next year... It will be 50 years oh my since gosh. we met. That's incredible. Yes. Have to have a party. That's for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. And one of the things that drew me to loving Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who we're going to talk about in this podcast, was the fact that they'd worked together for 50 years. And I thought, oh, Terry and I have been working together for almost 50 years, so there's so much like us. Although I I have to say I'm completely in awe of them and what they did. I'm I'm very flattered that you see me (laughs) in any way in Susan B. Anthony. Well, we stand on the shoulders of giants. (laughs) That's for damn sure. So for Women's History Month, Um, we thought we would share the celebration with you by reading some letters between Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. I first had the idea that Terry and I should do something on them when I saw a photo of the two of them and thought, why, they look a lot like us. I mean, I still feel that way. I still feel in proper makeup and costume of the time, we could really look like the two of them. And they have, we have other things in common too. Well, I mean, the fact that we are incredibly close friends and have been collaborating on our work in the world for so very long. Yes. Right. And dedicated to women. Yes. And very devout feminists. Absolutely. So we, um, in 2017, Carolyn and I kind of went on a pilgrimage to uh, women's rights and abolitionist places in the state of New York, because that's where Susan and Elizabeth both lived. Yes, you know, Seneca Falls, where the first women's convention was held, was in Seneca Falls, because that's where Elizabeth Cady Stanton lived. And Susan B. Anthony lived in Rochester, which is very close. So we went on this pilgrimage. We went through D.C. and we saw some things in New York City. But primarily, we were in upstate New York. It was really quite wonderful because it was 2017, the 100th anniversary of the women of New York State getting the vote. So there was all kinds of activities going on and reenactments of uh, different things that had happened uh, in the struggle to get the vote. And uh, we went to several of them. 
That's right. There was a whole event. They came down the Erie Canal on a barge, and they stopped at every little town and did these readings of um, different people in the suffrage and abolitionist movement. And we went to two of the of the piers where they were docking and, and saw them. They were all dressed in costume, and there was somebody always representing Frederick Douglass, who was a great supporter of uh, the women's movement in the beginning. And it was really an amazing thing to be a little part of. Right. And we went to their houses and graves. It was a real pilgrimage. And then we also, when we were in Washington, D.C., Terry was performing Hick in uh, Virginia. And we went over to Washington, D.C., and we went to Frederick Douglass's house. And he had a portrait of Elizabeth Cady Stanton in his study and a portrait of Susan B. Anthony in a room upstairs. And there weren't hundreds of portraits. I mean, these were very special to him. That was very moving to me. Especially in his study, he had Garrison, who was the great abolitionist and his uh, great mentor and patron, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Those were the two portraits that he had in his study. And another great thing about the two of them, for anybody who likes to read or any researchers, is they wrote an incredible amount. And they are very uh, wonderful, lively writers and fantastic letter writers. So that's what we, so we did a, um, a birthday party for Susan B. Anthony. She, her birthday was on February 15th. So we had a birthday party and invited people, and we put together this. Did I think you put it together, didn't you, Crony? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think it was you who put together this kind of conversation based on their letters to each other. Right. And as Terry says, it's very stimulating and energizing to read their writing. Right. And the people, the women who came to our birthday party for Susan felt that way too. So we're going to share that reading with you now. And I, Carolyn Myers, am playing Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And I am going to be Susan B. Anthony. In 1848, I and several other women organized a women's rights convention, the first such gathering of women anywhere in the world. Three days before the convention opened, I sat down at a small, round, mahogany table in my parlor and wrote the Declaration of Sentiment. Using the Declaration of Independence as a model, I revised the five famous words, all men are created equal, to read, all men and women are created equal. Then I described 18 grievances against women and ended with 11 resolutions. The most important and most radical was the last, the tool by which all the others could be attained and protected, women's sacred right to elective franchise, women's right to vote. Three years later, in 1851, I went to Seneca Falls for an anti-slavery convention, but I was also eager to meet this woman, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who everyone was talking about. 
One morning, I was taking a stroll with my dear friend, Amelia Bloomer, and suddenly there Mrs. Stanton was walking towards us. She was also wearing Amelia's extraordinary and controversial costume, named after her, Bloomers. Oh, the Bloomers. From the first moment I put them on, I was like a captive set free from his ball and chain. Yes, with a shorter skirt and pants underneath, I was always ready for a brisk walk through sleet and snow and rain, to climb a mountain, jump over a fence. To work in the garden, and in fact for any necessary locomotion. But in the end, the physical freedom did not compensate for the persistent persecution and petty annoyances suffered at every turn. We were already described as a hybrid species, unfeminized, half man, half woman, for our views on women's rights. Now we were scorned and ridiculed for our clothes, resembling a man in her dress, having boots on like a man, dicky like a man, vest like a man. I had to give it up, too. They could not even begin to listen to what we had to say. In 1854... In a letter to Susan B. Anthony, I wrote, ah, Let down a dress and petticoat. The cup of ridicule is greater than you can bear. It is not wise, Susan, to use up so much energy that way. But, Mrs. Stanton, we digress. We were describing our first meeting. Oh, yes. My first sighting of Susan B. Anthony. There she stood with her good, earnest face and genial smile dressed in gray delaine, hat and all the same color, relieved with pale blue ribbons, the perfection of neatness and sobriety. I liked her thoroughly, and why I did not at once invite her home with me to dinner, I do not know. There was an intense attraction between myself and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Our first collaboration was a speech Susan was to give and then the address I would make after she nominated me to be president of the New York State Women's Temperance Society. Which I had founded after the Sons of Temperance informed the Daughters of Temperance that we were invited to the National Convention not to speak, but to listen and learn. I walked out immediately, followed by an enraged few, and we started a separate organization. I was a successful organizer, but not yet a speaker. I turned to Mrs. Stanton for help. Seneca Falls, April 2nd, 1852. My dear friend, Susan B. Anthony, I will gladly do all in my power to help you. Come and stay with me, and I will write the best lecture I can for you. I have no doubt a little practice will make you an admirable speaker. Dress loosely, take a great deal of exercise, be particular about your diet and sleep enough. The body has great influence upon the mind. In your meetings, if attacked, be cool and good-natured, for if you are simple and truth-loving, no sophistry can confound you. As for my own address, if I am to be president, it ought perhaps to be sent out with the stamp of the convention. But as anything from my pen is necessarily radical, no one may wish to share with me the odium of what I may choose to say. 
If so, I am ready to stand alone. I never write to please anyone. If I do please, I am happy. But to proclaim my highest convictions of truth is always my sole object. I have been rereading the report of the London Anti-Slavery Convention of 1840, which I attended with Lucretia Mott. How thoroughly humiliating it was to us. Men and angels give me patience. I am at the boiling point. If I do not find within myself someday the use of my tongue, I shall die of an intellectual repression, a woman's rights convulsion. Oh, Susan, 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 you must manage to spend a week with me. The Temperance Convention met in Rochester, New York on April 20th, 1852. More than 500 people showed up because I had organized it well. I had written countless letters, gotten press coverage, traveled to spread the news by word of mouth, invited prominent speakers who would attract a crowd, secured a hall, and supervised every detail from the program to the flowers. Men were allowed, although they were not permitted to hold office or vote. Elizabeth was elected president. She gave the powerful speech which we had created together parts of which acted as a bombshell, not only in this meeting, but in press, pulpit, and society. She proposed that women be allowed to divorce a drunkard at a time when divorce was a taboo subject. She stated that women's rights, including suffrage, must be united with the temperance cause. We stood together. The organization grew to 2,000 members. But a year later, a motion was made to change the Constitution and allow men to vote and to be elected as officers. They changed the name from the Women's League to the People's League and denied a connection to women's rights. Elizabeth was defeated for re-election as president, and she refused to be vice president. I refused to continue as secretary. Together, we walked away from the organization I had founded. I returned home to Rochester disheartened. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Seneca Falls, June 20th, 1853. Dear Susan, you ask me if I am not plunged in grief at my defeat at the recent convention for the presidency of our society. Not at all. I am only too happy in the relief I feel from this additional care. I accomplished all I desired by having the divorce question brought up. Now, Susan, I do beg of you to let the past be past and to waste no powder on the Women's State Temperance Society. We have other and bigger fish to fry. We began meeting night after night by the light of an old-fashioned fireplace. We plotted and planned the coming agitation, how, when, and where, each entering wedge by which women might be recognized and her rights secured, these nights of collaboration and argument resumed irregularly over the next 50 years, whenever we could manage it. At the beginning, I was often forced to be at home because of the demands of childbirth and mothering. I eventually had seven children. So I focused on writing, articles, speeches, pamphlets, while Susan stumped the state of New York, even in direst winter, speaking everywhere. 
Rochester, May 26th, 1856. Dear Mrs. Stanton, home getting along towards midnight and Mrs. Stanton, not a word written on that address for the teacher's convention. This week was to be leisure to me, and lo, our servant girl, a wife, had a miscarriage, and the mercy only knows when I can get a moment, and what is worse, if I get all the time in the world, I can't get up a decent document. So for the love of me and for the saving of the reputation of womanhood, I beg you with one baby on your knee and another at your feet and four boys whistling, buzzing, hallooing, Ma! Ma! Set yourself about the work. It is but small moment who writes the address for the teacher's convention, but a vast moment that it be well done. I promise you to work hard, oh, how hard, and pay you whatever you say for your time and brains, but don't say no, nor don't delay it a moment, for I must have it all done and almost commit to memory. Now will you load my gun, leaving me only to pull the trigger and let fly powder and ball? Don't delay one mail to tell me what you will do, for I must not and will not allow these schoolmasters to say, See, these women can't or won't do anything when we do give them a chance. No, they shan't say that, even if I have to get a man to write it. But no man can write from my standpoint, nor no woman but you. For all, all would base the strongest argument on the unlikeness of the sexes. And more than in any other place does the difference of sex, if there is any, need to be forgotten than in the schoolroom. Now do, I pray you, give heed to my prayer. Those of you who have the talent to do honor to poor, oh, how poor womanhood, have all given yourselves over to baby-making and left poor brainless me to do battle alone. It is a shame. It is a crime for you and Lucy Stone and Antoinette Brown to be rocking cradles. Oh, do get all on fire and be as cross as you please. You remember Mr. Stanton told me how cross you always get over speech. Goodbye. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Seneca Falls, August 2nd, 1857. Dear Susan, I did indeed see by the papers that you have once more stirred that part of intellectual stagnation the educational convention. Mr. Stanton brought me every item he could see about you. Well, he would say, another notice about Susan. You stir up Susan, and she stirs up the world. I am glad you went to torment them. If I do nothing else this fall, I am bound to aid you to get up an anti-slavery address. You must come here for a week, or two, and we will accomplish wonders. You and I have the prospect of a good, long life. We shall not be in our prime before 50, and after that we shall be good for 20 years at least. And you were right, Mrs. Stanton. Thank the fates I was right. We had 30 more years after 50, in fact. To Susan B. Anthony, on her 80th birthday, February 15th, 1900. 
My honored friend, I'll ne'er forget that day in June when first we met. Oh, would I have the skill to paint my vision of that Quaker saint. Robed in plain blue and silver gray, no silly fashions did she essay. Her brow was smooth and fair, neath coils of soft brown hair. Her voice was like the lark, so clear, so rich and pleasant to the ear. We met and loved ne'er more to part, hand clasped in hand, heart bound to heart. We've traveled west years together, day and night in stormy weather, climbing the rugged suffrage hill, bravely facing every ill, while resting, speaking everywhere, quite often in the open air, from sleighs, ox carts, and shaky coaches, besieged with beetles, bugs, and roaches. All this for emancipation of the brave women of our nation. Now we've had enough of travel and in turn laid down the gavel. In triumph, having reached four score, we'll give our thoughts to art and lore. In the time-honored retreat, side by side, we will take a seat. To younger hands resign the reins, with all honors and the gains. United, down life's hill we'll glide, whate'er the coming years betide. Parted only when first in time, Eternal joys are thine or mine. October 23rd, 1902. My dear Mrs. Stanton, I shall indeed be happy to spend with you November 12th, the day on which you round out your four score and seven, over four years ahead of me. But in age, as in all else, I follow you closely. It is 51 years since first we met and we have been busy through every one of them, stirring up the world to recognize the rights of women. The older we grow, the more keenly we feel the humiliation of disenfranchisement, and the more vividly we realize its disadvantages in every department of life. We little dreamed when we began this contest, optimistic with the hope and buoyancy of youth, that half a century later we would be compelled to leave the finish of the battle to another generation of women. But our hearts are filled with joy to know that they enter upon this task equipped with a college education, with business experience, with the fully admitted right to speak in public, all of which were denied to women 50 years ago. They have practically but one point to gain, the suffrage. We had all. These strong, courageous, capable young women will take our place and complete our work. There is an army of them where we were but a handful. Ancient prejudice has become so softened, public sentiment so liberalized, and women have so thoroughly demonstrated their ability as to leave not a shadow of doubt that they will carry our cause to victory. And we, dear old friend, shall move on to the next sphere of existence. Higher and larger, we cannot fail to believe, and one where women will not be placed in an inferior position, but will be welcomed on a plane of perfect intellectual and spiritual equality. 
ever lovingly yours, Susan B. Anthony. Oh, don't you love them? <laughs> I love them and their love for each other and all the work they did. Oh, oh I know. I know. Yeah. None of us, none of us women would be in the same place today if yeah. it wasn't for them. Absolutely. And, and besides writing each other, they also wrote the three volume, A History of Women's Suffrage, along with a third woman, Matilda Gage, an amazing being in her own right. And, um, and in that, they collected every speech that they could find, everything that was done. And Sojourner's Truth, famous speech, Ain't I a Woman?, we wouldn't even know about if they hadn't gotten this woman to write it down and then they put it in the, in the history. That's why we know it happened. So I just want to read one more little thing. This is from um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, a friendship that changed the world. And it's a, it's about after they died. So this is Elizabeth's daughter, uh, wrote to Susan B. Anthony's niece at, right after Susan had died and uh, Elizabeth had been dead for a while. On March 13, 1906, Susan died at home in Rochester, New York. The next day, Elizabeth's daughter, Maggie, wrote to Mary. So, dear Susan has gone and left you. I wonder if she and mother are walking hand in hand in the great beyond. A long time ago, a sculptor here in New York made a cast of Mother's and Susan's hands clasped. I got it out yesterday, threw a yellow silk kerchief over a pillow and laid the hands thereon. Then I got out numerous pictures that I have and placed them around. In front of this group I stood a vase of yellow flowers. I felt quite with all these pictures and with the clasped hands that both Mother's and Susan's souls were with me in my little house. And that is our contribution to Women's History Month. May you all have a great month. Thank you for listening to us.